This is the story of Raiders of the Lost Ark. You can read along with me in your book. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the bullwhip crack like this. Let's begin now. Welcome to a very special series from The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this series, we are reading of The Lost Ark. We are talking about the original story sessions. Actually, probably not that original because I think there were some before these were transcribed. Anyway, there is a series of recordings that were made with the likes of George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and Larry Kasdan, Lawrence Kasdan all back way before the making of Raiders of the Lost Ark, back when they were still debating about the name of the character even. This is a fascinating thing to me, to hear these three very creative gentlemen talking about story ideas, putting together, for me, one of my most favorite films ever. To hear the ideas, to hear the creative process, to hear how they get close to what we know and love today really neat. And so I looked around for a while and I'm sure that after I post this, there will be people coming out of the woodwork to tell me, oh, this has already been done before. That's fine. That's really okay. I would have rather have not done this because it took a lot to take out a few hours every Sunday with two of my buddies reading this and inevitably screwing up quite a bit. That's me. That's not them. But man, oh man, and my Larry Kasdan impersonation, not good. No, no, it's not good at all. There'll also be hopefully a couple interviews that are coming out as part of this series as well. I'm still working on at least one of those. And hey, if anybody knows where I can get a hold of Lawrence Kasdan, that'd be fantastic. I spoke with the guy years and years ago, 1993. He came in and spoke with my intro to film class. I think it was one of the film classes I took at U of M because Frank Beaver, I believe was his professor. He was also my professor. Might've even been his friend. I'm not sure. Larry Kasdan can tell a great story and I would love to get him on the show to tell me some. In this recording, you are going to hear me as Lawrence Kasdan, Andrew Rausch as Steven Spielberg, and really carrying the lion's share of the work is the one and only Chris Stashu of the Culture Cast and WeirdingWayMedia.com. He is taking on the very thankless task of channeling George Lucas. No, he's not doing an impersonation. Thank goodness. I was the only one to be dunderheaded around that. And it basically sounds like my own voice, just a little bit more nasally, if you can believe that. Like I said, we have this broken up into three parts with three discussions and a few specials as well and a few interviews as well, perhaps. So keep your eyes peeled for those. They'll be coming out pretty quick here, as quick as I can get them cut, pretty much. Luckily, like I said, I was the one doing most of the screw-ups, so editing the other guys, not a problem. Really hope you enjoy this as much as I enjoyed putting it together. And let's just go ahead and take it away. 
We'll just talk general ideas, what the concept of it was. Then we'll get down to going specifically through the story. Then we'll actually get to where we start taking down scenes. In the end, I want to end up with a list of scenes. And the way I work generally is a code, a general measuring stick parameter. I can either come up with 30 or 60 scenes, depending on which scale you want to work on. A 30-scene thing means that each scene is going to run around 4 pages long. A 61 means that every scene is going to run 20 pages long. It depends on, part of it is, the knock some of these out, and this doesn't work the way we thought it would. You can move these things around, but it generally gives you an idea, assuming that what we really want at the end is a 120-page script or less. But that's where we're really wanting to go. And then we figure out vaguely what the pace of it is, how fast it's going to move, and how we're going to do it. I have a tendency to work rather mathematically about all this stuff. I find it easier, and it does lay things out, especially a thing like this. The basic premise is that it's sort of serial-esque kind of movie, meaning that these certain things that are going to have to continue to happen. It's also basically an action piece for the most part. We want to keep things interspaced and at the same time build it. As I build this up, you'll see it done vaguely by the numbers. Generally, the concept is a serial idea. Done like the Republic serials, as a 30s serial, which is where a lot of stuff comes from anyways. One of the main ideas was to have, depending on whether it would be every 10 or every 20 minutes, a sort of cliffhanger situation that we may get our hero into. If it's every 10 minutes, we do it 12 times. I think that may be a little much. Six times is plenty. And each cliffhanger is better than the one before. And that is a progression we have to do. It's hard to come up with. The trouble with cliffhangers is you get somebody into something, you sort of have to get them out in a plausible way. A believable way, anyway. There's another important concept of the movie, that it would be totally believable. <laughs> it's a spaghetti western, only it takes place in the 30s. Or it's James Bond and it takes place in the 30s. Except James Bond tends to get a little outrageous at times. We're going to take the unrealistic side off of it. We're going to make it more like the Clint Eastwood Western. Excuse me. The thing with this is we want to make a very believable character. We want him to be extremely good at what he does, as this is the Clint Eastwood character of the or the James Bond character. James Bond and the man with no name were very good at what they did. They were very fast with a gun. They were very slick. They were very professional. They were supermen. Like Mifune. Yep. Mike Mifune, he's a real professional. He's really good. And that is the key to the whole thing. That's something you just don't see much anymore. And one of the things that really helped Mifune in all the Kurosawa movies is that he was always surrounded by really inept characters, really silly buffoons, which made him so much more majestic. If there are occasions where he comes up against not the arch-villain, but the people around him shouldn't be the smartest. Well, they shouldn't be buffoons. The one thing we're going to do is make a very good period piece. That is realistic and believable. A 30s movie in the, even in the Sam Spade genre. Even in the Maltese Falcon, there were some pretty goofy characters. But they were all pretty real in their own bizarre way. Elijah Cook. Elijah Cook might not have been the brightest person in the world. In a way, he was the buffoon of the piece. But at the same time, he was very dangerous and he was very... They were very strong characters. And we can keep that mode of believability. It's just like you don't put Lee Van Cleef as an accomplice to... No, you put Eli Wallach. Did you see the good, the bad, and the ugly? The Eli Wallach character is a goofy character, but at the same time, he's very dangerous, and he's very funny, and he's... He can have that kind of thing. The main thing for him is to be a superhero in the best sense of the way, which is John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, Sean Connery tradition of a man who we can all look up to and say, now there's somebody who really knows the job. He's really good at what he does, and he's a very dangerous person. But at the same time, we're kind of putting him in the Bogart mold, like Treasure of the Sierra Madre. 
Or even the Clark Gable thing we talked about. Yeah, the Clark Gable mold. The fact that he's slightly scruffy. You don't know it until it happens. Now, the several aspects that we've discussed before. The image of him, which is the strongest image, is the Treasure of Sierra Madre outfit, which is the khaki pants. He's got the leather jacket, that sort of felt hat, the pistol in the holster with a World War I sort of flap over it. He's going into the jungle carrying his gun. The other thing we've added to him, which may be fun, is a bullwhip. That's really his trademark. That's really what he's good at. He has a pistol, and he's probably good at that, but at the same time, he happens to be very good with a bullwhip. It's really more of a hobby than anything else. Maybe he came from Montana someplace, and he... There are freaks who love bullwhips. They just do it all the time. It's a device that hasn't been used in a long time. You can knock somebody's belt off, and the guy's pants fall down. He can swing over things. You can... There there are so many things you can do with it. I thought he carried it rolled up. It's like a samurai sword. He carries it back there, and you don't even notice it. That way, it's not in the way or anything. It's just there whenever he wants it. At some point in the movie, he might use it to get a girl back who's walking out of the room. Wrap her up, and she twirls as he pulls her back. She spins into his arms. You have to use it for more things than just saving himself. We'll have to work that part out. In a way, it's important that it can be a dangerous weapon. It really looks like a snake that's curled up behind him. And anytime it strikes, it's a real threat. Except there has to be that moment when he's alone with a can of beer and he just whips it to him. That's the sort of gung-ho side of the character, which is, if we can make him sort of super samurai warrior, meaning that he is incredibly good with a bullwhip and incredibly good with a gun. He's a dead-eye shot. And that's not the wrong kind of holster for a quick draw, but he can always have... He's got the wrong kind of holster for a quick draw, but we can always have him be a semi... We're not even going to use the quick draw aspects of it, but he can be very fast and very quick. Maybe even this has to do with the other part of the character, but I was thinking of Kung Fu Karate. But I don't want to load him up too much. The reason I was doing this is that his character is international. He's the guy who's been all around the world. He's a soldier of fortune. He is also, well, he gets into that other side of the character, which is totally alien to that side we talked about. Essentially, I think he is, this was the original character and it's an interesting juxtaposition. He is an archaeologist and an anthropologist, a PhD. He's a doctor. He's a college professor. What happened is he's also sort of a rough and tumble guy, but he got involved, but he got involved in going in and getting antiquities, sort of searching out antiquities, and it became a very lucrative profession. So he, rather than be an archaeologist, he became sort of an outlaw archaeologist. He really started being a grave robber for hire is what it really came down to. And the the museums would hire him to steal things out of tombs and stuff or locate them. In the archaeology circles, he knows everybody, so he's kind of like a private detective grave robber. A museum will give him an assignment, a bounty hunter. If there were these Arabs who just discovered some great king's tomb, and you see the tomb being taken out, and there are about 20 or 30 Arabs heavily armed, and like five trucks, and you realize there's this one guy who's all painted, and he's one of the pallbearers who slips a thing into the back of the truck, gets behind the wheel, and as the caravan is going to turn right, This one thing goes left, and the rest chase him, but he gets away. The thing is, if there is an object of antiquity that a museum knows about that may be missing, or they know it somewhere, he can can go like an archaeologist, but it's like rather than doing research, he goes in to get the gold. He doesn't really go to find cheap artifacts, he goes to gather stuff. And the other thing is, if something was taken from a tomb, stolen, and sort of in the underground... Sometimes they may send him out to get it. Essentially, he's a bounty hunter. He's a bounty hunter of antiquities is what it comes down to. If a museum says that there is this famous vase that we know exists, it was in the tomb at this time, 
It may still be there, but we doubt it. We think maybe it's on the underground market or in a private collection. We'd like to have it. Actually, it belongs to us. We're the National Museum of Cairo or something. He says, okay, and he tracks it down. If it's not in the thing, he finds it, finds out who's got it, and he swipes it back. A lot of times it's sort of legal. All he has to do is get it. It's not like he steals things from collectors and then gives them to other collectors. What he does is steal things from private collectors who get them illegally and gives them back to the national museums and stuff. Or, being that his morality isn't all that good, he will go into the actual grave and steal it out of the country and give it to the museum. It's a sort of quasi-ethical side of that whole thing. The museum does commission somebody to go into the pyramids and, you know, whatever they find, sort of get out without the Egyptian government knowing, because they were in the process of turmoil and nobody's going to know anyway, and there's not going to be any official protest, so just do it. Anything that's quasi-legal or amorphous, he'll do it. He's not a totally corrupt person where he'll steal. But if it's a sort of fair game, then he comes in. As a result, he's essentially an anthropologist and an archaeologist. He is a professor, he knows antiquities, so nobody can pawn a fake off on him. He understands all that stuff, but he really got the adventure bug and he just kept doing it. And it was good money. He gets a big commission on the stuff, a big bounty. So he just got into this crazy business. Now, on top of that, I have added, I thought it would be interesting to have him sort of be an expert in the occult as an offshoot of the anthropological side of this thing. He has a tendency to get into situations where he can get where there are voodoo, taboos, things, especially when he starts dealing with pyramids, you can get into all of that. So he sort of studies it all because he's gotten mixed up with it. A study of ancient religions and voodoo and all that kind of stuff. He's a guy who sort of checks out ghosts and psychic phenomenon in connection with the things he does. He's a sort of archaeological exorcist. When someone has a haunted house or a haunted temple and nobody will go near it, he is the one who will go in there and do it, and he has dealt with it. Assuming that he believes in the supernatural because he deals with it, he is the only one they send into the haunted house. Like one of those haunted house professors who try and figure out why a house is haunted. He does that. He gets involved with sacred temples and curses and all that stuff. And actually, some were real. He came across some real curses and stuff. He said, hey, this is really interesting. A lot of times there are hoaxes, and he can figure it out. This is just a general history of where he comes from. People will use the pharaohs or a curse and something will happen. People will walk through this particular temple and they will die 24 hours later. Nobody knows why. The curse of Mobutu is on this place. Well, he looks at it and sees there's a fissure in the thing and there's a deadly gas coming out of the ground. Because he's an intelligent professor, he knows his science and he can kind of deduce a hoax. There was a comic book a long time ago about a guy who did nothing but show up hoaxes. It was like Ripley's Believe It or Not. They would send things to this guy. They would send him eight-legged dogs and stuff. It was like a TV show. If he couldn't figure out how the hoax was done, then it would be on the show. It was all about him trying to show these complicated ways that people come up with hoaxes. This was just a sidelight. When he confronts his antiquities and stuff, half the time he's dealing with hoaxes. Not only hoaxes in terms of taboos and things, but also hoaxes in terms of the antiquities. They send him out to get them, but they also send him out to deal with the supernatural. Some of the hoaxes may have been set up by the natives. Yeah. Yeah, there may be an original native thing or maybe just a shyster in town who thinks he's going to pull a fast one on someone for various reasons. It's a milieu I've created for this guy that I think is interesting because it also makes him somewhat of a ghost chaser in his own way. I don't know actually how much of that aspect of it will fit into the script. It's something I've added to the character. He's bound to run into those kind of things. Yeah, the thing is, if he is an intelligent sort of professor who has experience with the occult and that 
kind of thing, then he is not only not afraid to stand up against any man, but he's also not afraid to stand up against the unknown. If he walks into a cave and adds a yellow slash to a symbol, you don't have to say too much about how he found that out, you know? We've established that he's a college professor. It doesn't have to be done in a strong way. It starts out in a museum. They call him Dr. This and Dr. That. We can very easily make that transition and very e- and very quickly establish that whole side of his character. In the story, the ramifications of him as a ghost hunter have not been dealt with yet. But I put this in his character for use in some other way. It seems like it would be nice if, once stripped of his bullwhip, left him weak. If we had to worry, just a little worried about him being too... Well, that's what I thought. That's why I was sort of iffy about throwing it in. If we don't make him vulnerable... What's he afraid of? He's got to be afraid of something. If we don't make him vulnerable, he's got no problems. We'll shut that idea for now. The other thing, which is like Kung Fu and the ghost thing, which given the plot and the way it's working, there's not really time to cope with it in an interesting way. It's a nice aspect of this thing. Might be able to deal with it, might not. It's not really that important. It's the same thing with the Kung Fu. It might be stacking too much into his character that's not necessary. Just the fact that he's good with a bullwhip is going to be fun enough. You could fill a script. In one way, it's better to keep it clean. As long as he has brains, he should be able to talk his way out of these things. I think that would be his first choice. The guy should be a great gambler, too. The thing of it is, I think it's good if we delineate a fairly clean personality so that it wouldn't become too confused. Assume there's an archaeologist who spent years studying this. He might have some kind of awe and respect for virgin tombs. This guy has obviously gone past that into, I can make a good living out of this. What's his stance on this? Does it bother him to go in and... I think he's very cynical about the whole thing. Maybe he thinks that most archaeologists are just full of shit and that somebody's going to rip this stuff off anyway. Better that he rips it off and gets it to a museum where people can study it and rip it off right away. That's the key, also. He knows how to enter a tomb without destroying it. He knows not to go in there like a bull in a china shop and destroy half the stuff that's valuable. You should have a mentor in this. Somebody you never see, but he refers to time and time again. Somebody you want to see. The man who taught him everything. The man who gave him whatever power he has now. Maybe some supreme archaeologist who's maybe 90 years old, like Max von Sydow, and is dying now. So you know it didn't start with this guy. There were other greater predecessors around of this sort. Is it necessary that he be really trained? It's not absolutely necessary. I just thought it would be amusing if people could call him a doctor. I like that. The doctor with the bullwhip. It's such an odd juxtaposition, especially going around. The first sequence is in the jungle and you see him in action. You see him going through the whole thing. And then the next sequence after that, you see him back in Washington or New York, back in the museum, where he's in a totally academic thing, turning over this thing that he's got. Then the rest of the movie, you see him back in bullwhip mode. You understand that there's more to him. Plus, it justifies later that he, the fact that he's sort of an intelligent guy, Peter Falk is one way at looking at him, at Humphrey Bogart's character. The fact that he's sort of scruffy and not the right image. Peter's too scruffy. Yes. We'll figure out a way of laying that out in his personality so it's easily identifiable. Remember the movie Soldier of Fortune with Clark Gable? There was a good deal of Rhett Butler in that character. The devil-may-care kind of guy who can handle situations. He's so damn glib, he bluffs everybody around. People think that he's a pushover. He's challenged, and he always appears like a pushover. But in fact, he's not. He likes to set himself up in these subordinate roles from time to time so he can get his way. What I'm saying is that character just would not fit in in a college classroom or even as an archaeologist. 
He's too much of a scruffy character to settle down, a playboy or whatever, or however you want to do it. He's too much of a wise guy, maybe that's a better way to say it, to be an actual college professor. He really loves the stuff, but he became too cynical. He's too much of a wise guy to fit into an academic situation or even in an archaeological situation. He's really too much of an adventurer at heart. He just loves it. So he obviously took this whole bent that it was different because it was just more fun. He just can't settle down. It's a nice contrast. It's like the James Bond thing. Instead of being a martini drink, cultured kind of sophisticate, he's the sort of intellectual college professor James Bond. He's a super agent. Clark Kent. Yeah, it's a thing, which is fun. It's the same idea, only twisted around a little bit. A soldier of fortune in the 30s. And also, when you think the 30s, you think of colleges as real institutions. That whole genre was much different than it is now. And also, Soldier of Fortune was a real genre. His main adversaries will be the Germans? Yeah, I think they should be. I've been trying to move him around the world a little bit to see if we can't get a little Oriental influence into it just for the fun of it. I may have fit it in. The fun thing is, he's a Soldier of Fortune, so we can move him into any sort of exotic 30s environment we want to. Keep him out of the States. We don't want to do one shot in this country. I have the second scene taking place in Washington. It's just the interior museum. But at the same time, we also want to keep it budget-wise and everything else. We don't want to have 8,000 screaming Chinese coming over the hill being strafed by Japanese zeros unless we can find stock footage somewhere. We want to keep it on a fairly... I think generally overall, we want to keep it on a very modest scale. All of the first James Bond. All of the first hang em high thing. Where it is essentially a conflict between people and things. Obviously, there is a lot of stuff going on, but there are certainly big set pieces that are fun to play with. And if we can divide these set pieces so we can shoot them sort of second unit, then we have all the fun stuff in the period, and it's essentially a set piece. We'll just send a stock footage crew out to get certain things we might get that we might be able to come up with without too much money just by sending a second camera and a crew and getting a shot here and there of various things that we want. The concept is that somehow we have to figure out a way of making this cheap, meaning six or seven million dollars. One thing, there aren't any opticals, so right away, that saves a lot of money. And we want to spend our money on stunts. We want to have wind and the lion action. Spend it all on stunt guys falling off of horses rather than one crowded scene with 16,000 extras for one shot. You can also steal that anywhere in the Mideast. Maybe we'll work something like that out. Even then, for production value and entertainment value, it's much better to have a terrific stunt than to have a scene with 8,000 extras. I don't think we need lots of crowds. You can always get that in some other countries. It's no problem. It's all period. That's the problem. In places like Bombay, it doesn't make any difference. Again, that's one of those stock footage things. You want to send an A cameraman and a production manager over there. Tell them to make a deal with some New Delhi film company to supply 15 old cars and 8,000 extras, and we'll pay them $7,000. We'll photograph the stuff, and we'll bring it back here. Or like Hong Kong, go to Run Run Shaw and say we want three shots like this. You gaff the whole thing, and we'll pay X number of dollars sent. Send your cameraman or a good second unit cameraman whom you trust and a production manager to handle it financially, and they do it, and you come back with dailies of an establishing shot with 10,000 extras. You have a small, smoke-filled room in Rome with your two actors. I think we can hopefully sort that out. Part of it is the energy of making it reasonably low budget. It's also a test of the idea. 
If it's good, then we'll be okay. I think I will go down and describe roughly the plot. After we do that, we can go through scene by scene. Then we can start the long, arduous process of saying, well, this is what the first scene should be, and we really want this scene, but how can we fit it in? And really just get down to the specifics. The film starts in the jungle, South America, someplace. We get one of those great scenes with the pack animals coming up the mist-covered hills, very exotic, mist-filled jungles and mountains. There's a... We actually talked about it a little different from this, but you can correct me if I have gone off what we talked about the last time. I'm going back, I think, to the original. Where he goes into the cave? This is where he goes into the cave. We had it where there's a couple native bears, whatever, and a couple Mexicans. Well, not Mexican. Let's put it. They're like Mayan. They're the third world local Sleezos. Whether they're Mexicans or Arabs or whatever. And they carry the boxes over their heads. They fall off cliffs. The Sleezos with the thin mustaches. Those are the peon laborers. And you have the two guys who are the local gaffers. Foremen or whatever. These, the guys he hired. They speak English. The interpreters or whatever. We're assuming that at this point when we come into it, the talk is like we're all sort of partners. He's a partner with these other two guys. He said, look, I'll cut you into the stake. I'll pay you X number of dollars when I do this if you do it. Well, they're not very trustworthy, Eli Wallach types. They're going up this hill, and they come into a clearing, and you see the temple across the way. All the natives get restless and start to split. One of the guys goes to him and says, The natives are leaving. They're not going any further. It's the curse of that Buddha or whatever. He says they can probably get there from there without them. So the three of us can do it. See, if you can get a couple of them to carry on, to come along. They get about two or three guys to go with them. Our guy, the other two guys, and about the other three guys, the three other natives who are a little braver they get. So they continue on into the jungle with the snakes and the spiders and the bugs and all that stuff. And they walk forward and all the natives are looking around. It's all sort of misty and primeval. King Kong-ish. The pressure builds and one of the natives cracks, throws down his things, and scurries off. He splits and the other guys realize he's gone and they split. Pretty soon, when they get to the clearing right in front of the temple, it's just three guys. Along the way, they lost the three natives. Also in the process of this, they understand that the two guys are plotting against the other guy. Not only is there the spooky danger of the curse, but you also get a hint that these two guys are plotting against our hero. He gets up to the temples. They're nervous about the whole thing, and they sort of sit outside the clearing, and they talk about the curse and about how dangerous it is and how nobody has ever survived it. We set up the whole thing, the parameters of going into the temple. They have a map, not a map, but sort of a crude drawing. It has an interior of the temple on it that somebody else made. He brings it out this time. They're saying that nobody has ever survived. He says that with this information we've got here, I think we should be able to manage it. He says not to worry, guys. It's going to be okay. I think we can get in there. We should have enough information here where I think I can deduce my way through it. They focus on the map as he's surveying the thing. One of the guys tries to kill him and take the map, shoot him in the back or whatever it was. That's when we first see him with the bullwhip. That's where the plot comes alive. When he says with this information he thinks that he can get in, they don't realize that you have to know how to interpret that information. He kills this one guy and the other guy sort of backs off and he says he didn't have anything to do with it. He's crazy and I know he was a crook. And you knew they were in on it together, but the guy says, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. So he and the other guy go into the temple. You know the other guy's going to shoot him in the back eventually. As they get into the temple, you get into all these things, like there's a giant spider in there. The thing is, they're walking, and our hero goes into a shadow. When he comes out of the shadow, there's two tarantulas on it. He doesn't notice them right away. 
he goes into another shadow, and he comes out with four tarantulas on him now. The other process of the thing is that the guy who is with him is beginning to freak out. He can't take it. So he gets to a point where he just can't do it anymore. He runs out, and that's the last thing we ever see of him. We can use him as a foil to establish the pressure. It's getting crazy with all the tarantulas, and it's all very spooky. We get to a point in the tomb, and we do this thing, where, and then there's like this light shaft coming down from inside the temple. It's sort of a very narrow shaft. The stone tunnel that he's in is about this wide, and right in the middle is a very thin shaft of light coming down through a hole, a little beam. You see him look at it. We had him go through the wall. Actually, we had it happen first. What happened? We had it first where he sees the light and he tosses a thing in it, a stick. And these giant spikes come out and go... When the spikes come out and go like that, there should be remains, skeletal remains skewered on some of them, of victims that have been there before. It's kind of like one of those rides at Disneyland. So he tests it first, and we know... Why are we letting the second Sleezo get away? Why can't we sacrifice him to the temple? We can. I just did it as building the pressure, but we can keep him in. We'll follow it through, and then we'll see where you want to dispose of him. If the hero tells him to stick with him, and the guy in his panic makes the fatal one step sideways, you could build the terror. The idea of having him in the first place was to use him as a foil for things, like where he starts to walk into that light, and the guy tells him to wait. Don't go through that. Then he throws the stick, and it all goes clang. Anyway, they have to go through this beam of light, they have to go up against the wall and sort of get around it. If anything brushes up against the light, it's great because you can use it like this across your... It's all dark and you can see the light just like creeping right along the edge of the thing. You don't know how much it would actually take to set it off. And you've got to do the cliche where they're walking along this ledge and just this wide and goes into blackness. And he takes a rock and he drops it and you don't hear anything. So they keep going, and about 20 seconds later, you hear it hit. The idea was there would be three things, real neato things, like this giant stone that would jump together, spikes that fly out, and the precipice thing. Another one would be a giant sort of stone trap door. I I don't know how to describe it. There could be like wall mashers. Stones could, could mash. We had this one thing with the spikes. Another one was the trap door. It, it really isn't the better of the things. The best one is the shaft of light. I would just love to see the guys walking in, and there's a whole pile of skeletons. But they're like cardboard, completely flattened, like really completely flat. They know that something around here is going to squish them. They don't know what's causing it, but something, if they walk the wrong way, is going to come out and make them pancakes. The piece should be like a real horror ride, like a Disneyland ride. Once you're committed to going into that cave, there's seismic rumblings all the time, and there's stalagmites and things going drip, drip. It's going to really be a sound experience going through that cave. There's nothing more terrifying than skeletons. There's also things like spiders and snakes. It's very dark, and all you have to do is cut to a snake slithering across the ground, and he's walking through. You never know when a snake's going to be curled up on his leg. As he walks through the dark, there's tarantulas all around him. That kind of stuff. You don't know what's going to happen. This is the first scene in the movie. This scene should get at least four major screams. The audience won't trust anyone after that. They won't trust the film. There's also the thing you can do, which is your famous Jaws, or what I call the hand on the shoulder trick, which is not only skeletons, but we can also have skeletons that aren't that old. They've drawn skin all over them. They are just lurking in the shadows. Falling into their arms. A skeleton comes out of the cobwebs and just embraces the guy. The guy eases him to the ground. 
at the more tense moments in the whole thing. We'll work on that more specifically. Anyway, he goes through a series of really spooky, scary things. What we're just doing here really is designing a ride at Disneyland. Then we get into the main throne room, and this guy can either be with him or not. Or we've killed him off. There's a temple figure, idol, whatever. I thought at one time it would just be a little teeny idol rather than this giant thing. Voodoo, whatever. If the idol is really small, it's spookier. Like one of those voodoo dolls where you're saying this must have some sort of very strange... You can almost believe the curse on this thing. We've had a thing where there was this eye and he tried to pry the eye out and set it off. Very seventh curse. He had to get the eye out without doing. It's the same thing with the little figure. There's this little figure sitting on a pedestal or in a niche. First of all, when he gets in the room, it's semi-lit from above. It's sort of a skylight. The center of the thing is sort of the shaft that runs all the way down so there's sunlight. Who could we get to photograph this movie? And then (laughs) something, because George is just going to keep going. Yeah. Oh, boy, aren't I? (laughs) Um, Should I just keep going? You're doing a great job, Chris. Yes. So you can sort of see what's going on. At that time, we're afraid of sunlight and these kinds of things. It's also the kind of thing where he moves in very carefully. He moves in and studies it. It's almost like a karate or tai chi exercise. It's very... You see him in a very strange... If the guy is still with him, he says to him, You wait here. Only I can get through this. He studies the whole thing. You see him go through this very elaborate thing. One of them may be a thing where he holds out a little feathery thing and it floats under and it goes down. It gets caught in an air shaft. So he knows there's an air shaft and he goes under it. He knows it's a trap. All of those silent things that are in there. I know what one of these things was. It was poison sticks that were put into the wall. If you spring something, it shoots out. They're all over the place. He sees one. He does one. Twing! Then he looks around and the whole thing is sort of a honeycomb. That's a great idea. There are just holes everywhere. Everyone is attached to... They don't have to be big spears. They're like arrows. More like little projectiles. Yeah, little darts. It has to be big enough to be something. The idea is that one goes out and he looks at the hole. Then he looks up and realizes that the whole place is perforated with them. It goes off with air currents. like, Like if an air current is broken or that kind of thing. We don't have to fully understand all the mysteries of light shafts, air shafts, little things that are sort of there that he could trip. Maybe he brings his bandana up over his nose so his breath doesn't get out. The idea is he does an elaborate thing to lift this thing off. Obviously, there's some sort of weighted trap thing down there, too. Then he turns and trips something. Whether he steps into a light thing or however we do it, or whether it was the weight of the thing, it's sort of a delayed thing. Take one step and turn, then all of a sudden you hear the... Well, then we cut to a little insert of sand going, starting to fill up something. He hears it, and I have one of two choices. One, he runs like hell to try and get out of the room before whatever it is. Or, but then I've got all these things. I want it to be big action. I want it to be action. He hears the stuff and runs, and as he runs out of the thing, then there's the big stone goes. But we can work that out. Maybe a little bit more specific about what exactly the trap is. But whatever it is, he tips the thing off. You think he's got it, and right when you think he's got it, he starts to back away and he's tripped something. Some kind of delayed thing. You hear some giant mechanism at work inside the thing that's going to have some awesome thing that will crush the entire temple or something. In the process of this, one way or another, we will have to kill the other guy off or send him fleeing, screaming into the night. We can do anything to him. It will be easy to get rid of him if you want. In the end, he gets it and comes out of the temple into sunlight and looks and he's got the thing and we cut to Washington, D.C. You know what he could be? I've got a great idea. He hears the sand. When he goes into the cave, it's not straight. The whole thing is on an incline on the way in. He hears this, grabs the thing, comes to a corridor. 
There is a 65-foot boulder that's form-fitted to only roll down the corridor coming right at him, and it's a race. He gets to outrun the boulder. It then comes to rest and blocks the entrance of the cave. Nobody will ever come in again. This boulder is its the size of a house. It mashes the partner. Right. That guy can't run fast enough. It's all that kind of thing, Stone. Ancient gyrations of things that are so fun. It's really sort of a land of the pharaohs stuff. Giant crazy traps that were set so long ago to, to keep people from getting in there. The idea is to keep it as fast. Because in the end, all of this is is a teaser. The next scene is in Washington. He's delivering the idol to the museum. It's your basic exposition scene where the guy says thanks and we kind of understand what this guy does for a living. He gets his money from the museum. You understand a little bit more about him as a professor and all the other bullshit. Really sets up the fact that he's a bounty hunter and he works for the museum. In that scene, they set up the somebody here wants to see you. Who is it? The curator of the museum is also a good friend of his. Maybe not the mentor, but he's like a good old museum curator. He says, this is important. I've got a big job for you. Well, I don't have a big job for you, but this man wants to talk to you about something. So you should take it. So they go down into this office in the museum and there's this intelligence guy army intelligence a couple of them are waiting for him this is where we get the big assignment scene with the blackboard this is where they explain the arc i'm not sure what it's called ark of the covenant or something it's the ark that carried the this uh, this is the this arc this in front of the armies of israel made him them invincible everything in front of them was destroyed it was the most powerful thing we have one of these in search of the lost ark things i think also you've been describing this to people as a science fiction film which is good i have not it's in rolling stone Anyway, the idea is you explain the Ark, the power it held, and the fact that they have been searching. There's a history of it. This is, again, where the research comes in. Phil knew more about this than I did, and his notes are very sketchy. This is the part that he laid out. I don't quite understand it all, but I do have information on it. It's very easy to follow it. What it is, there's an Ark. A famous Ark with a legend that the Israeli armies would carry it in front of them, and they were invincible. The other thing is, which I have more research on, is that Adolf Hitler, 1936 or whatever, was a fanatic for this kind of stuff, occult craziness. We have another book here where he was looking for a spear that killed Jesus, which was in a museum in Czechoslovakia. Well, he was a fanatic for finding all this sort of occult stuff. He really was, and he searched the museums all over the world. He had his agents go in and get these things to make him all powerful. So we can tie that in. The idea is he was looking for this spear, which is a very famous thing. He stole it from the Czechs and took it to a museum in Berlin, and right now, it's supposed to have occult powers. We'll just say that Hitler has been trying to find this, which is history, and he's also trying to find this Ark. Obviously, what he wants to do is, he thinks that if he gets this Ark, his armies will be invincible, and he will declare war on the world. Which we know he does anyway. Right. But that isn't the thing. He thinks that once he gets this arc, he will be invincible, although he may do it anyway. But that's where our hero comes in. He's going to do it anyway, but if he gets this arc, there will be no stopping him. So they're doing it semi to prevent the war, which is sort of helpless. They're not really going after the arc for its supernatural powers. The army isn't. The army just wants to keep it away from Hitler. They're afraid if Hitler gets it, he'll declare war that much faster, and that will give him sort of a... But there's an interesting discussion here about this kind of stuff that Hitler does and about the history of the Ark. We'll set up that our agents have intercepted information that the Nazis have found the Ark or that they know something about the Ark. It has been located or something. What they want him to do is get the is to get it before the Nazis do. What does he know about it so far? He doesn't know anything about it. He can know a little bit. Yeah, I've heard of it. We make it so he's not completely ignorant to the situation. 
He knows more about the arc than he does about the Hitler aspects of it. We can play that scene rather than one guy just explaining it. We can play it where it's sort of explaining it to the army officer or something. Or maybe he knows more about it than the army guy does. Maybe the army guy is misinformed about the things. We can set it up so it works as a good scene. Because essentially the scene is, this is your mission. Maybe the fact that he knows more about it than they do is the turning point of the scene. He sort of talks himself into the job. One of the things of his character is that he's very skeptical, very cynical. In the beginning, he's reluctant. The Germans haven't found it, for Christ's sakes. Those guys are running all over the world being crazy. That's the real myth. He sort of doesn't believe it. It's like a wild goose chase. He isn't even sure it exists. The thing of it is that in the end, they convince him to do it because they say this Professor Eric von Daniken, or whatever, this German version of himself is the one who found it. Or the other possibility is they sent a message to that guy to come. We want to get a German arch-rival involved in it. We thought that at one point... He would be a Donald Pleasance character or whatever. The other idea was maybe making him something like Chinese, not German. Making him an ally of the Germans, so we can readily identify him. When you have all these Germans, you know which one he is immediately. So he would be different from all the other bad guys. Also, it wouldn't be so much of a coincidence that his arch-rival is a German and happens to be a Nazi like all the others. His arch-rival is really a top smuggler, diamond dealer, antiquity... He's the corrupt version of our character. He's the one who really goes in and rapes the temples and steals all the stuff and sends it off to private collectors and takes antiquities and breaks them into smaller pieces and sells each of the pieces for the price of the original. He's a really corrupt guy. Maybe he's the head of his own museum or something. He's sort of legitimate, only he's a corrupt person and our guy knows it. That guy is also very intelligent. He's like Moriarty. If he thinks the Ark is there, then there must be something to it. I don't care shit about the Germans, but by God, I'll stop him from getting it. So it becomes a personal grudge thing. It has to be, because there's nothing in it for our hero. They're not going to give him any more money, and they're certainly not going to give him the house he's always wanted to build. He might be very cynical about it until they tell him who might have it. When that name comes up, his ears perk, and a whole change comes over him. You realize that this thing goes way back with this grudge. They offer him money in the first place, but he's still skeptical. They offer him a lot of money. That's only if I get it, and I'm not going to get it. It's just a wild goose chase. There's not enough in it for me. Maybe they add a little bit more money, or they give him a guarantee whether he finds it or not. Or something just to find what the ger- find out what the Germans know. Then I'm just a spy. I'm not a spy. I'm an archaeologist. Why don't you just send one of your guys over there to do that? They say their guys don't know an ark from a bathtub. Then they tell them about the other guy. If he sent the message, then it must be true. Or better yet, there was a German archaeologist who doesn't know he sent the message who... Or better yet, there was a German archaeologist who he doesn't know who sent the message to bring in the other guy. He says, okay, I'll do it. I'm not going to let him get involved. It seems like they have a very personal grudge between them. Right. That's the whole thing. It's a very old grudge. That's his main competition. When he goes into a temple or something, either that guy has been there first and ravaged it, or that guy and his sleazy henchmen try to kill him. We can assume that those henchmen in the beginning may have been working for the other guy. If those guys had successfully murdered our guy in the first scene and gotten what they were looking for, they probably would have just sold it to the other guy because he's probably the largest fence in the world for that kind of junk. Rather than just a professional animosity. Obviously, he's stolen stuff from this guy, and this guy has tried to kill him a couple times. That would be part of the game. You know that as soon as you get a hold of something, that's only half of it. Getting it 
back is the other part. I don't know, a girl, a family, a child, something in the past that would make it step over the line from being a professional rivalry, some sorrow in our guy who is very cool and you never see it. I don't want to get it too much on a vengeance thing, but at the same time, I think we can tighten it. I don't want it to stand out that the only reason he's doing this is because he really hates the guy. The nice thing about it being a more professional grudge is that when you have a great is that you can have a great confrontation later. If one guy wins fair and square, they respect each other as archaeologists and opponents. So it doesn't become that if he gets that guy, he's going to kill him. If it's a real personal thing, like he killed his wife and raped his sister, then as soon as they meet up, he'd just kill the guy. And it would have been this all-consuming thing thing. This way, they hate each other. They have tried to kill each other and all that stuff. So it's just a friendly animosity. They respect each other. And sooner or later, one of them is going to kill the other. It's Moriarty and Sherlock Holmes. One of those things that they're constantly going back and forth with each other. I think he should be German because there's something nonviolent about the Oriental villain. Certainly he can use Kung Fu and be good with swords and everything. But there's something a little more ominous about a real German. I mean, an older German, not a young Aryan. Like the way Max von Sydow was in Three Days of the Condor. That sort of danger lurking about him. A brilliant murderer. He could be French or Italian. No, no. Italians are too crazy. He could be an Arab. One of those weasel-faced, thin-mustache Arab professors. Like Omar Sharif. I can't think of many Arabs who are actors. It's the Sidney Greenstreet character. I just think if he's not German, that it makes less of a coincidence. Sidney Greenstreet is the type of villain who, if you pulled a gun on him, he says, you disappoint me. Well, he could be Chinese or whatever. He's not a real killer or anything. He's just the one who's behind everything. He wouldn't shoot anybody, but he wouldn't hesitate for a second to say, shoot him. If that's the case, then he has to have a real rotten... He has to be a really slimy villain. A great villain. Charlie Chan. A villainous Charlie Chan. One of those real great characters. A six-foot-three-inch Oriental. It has to be very realistic, a sort of urbane, very exotic guy who would run the Shanghai Museum. He would also be an international dope smuggler and have connections all over the world. He would be selling off Ming treasures. He's a real pirate. He's not a Nazi. He's a mercenary. He's for hire. He's going to be surrounded by all sorts of brown shirts, swastikas on the arm. Right. He's working for the Nazis. They hired him because they found evidence of this thing, but they don't know how to go about it. They're not going to hire our guy, so the other great guy in the world who does this sort of thing is their guy. There's the great American Western guy, and there's the bad underworld guy. They have this problem of deciphering the sort of hieroglyphic they came up with to help them find where the Ark is. After this exposition scene, when he's on an airplane going somewhere, the engines start missing. Right away, there's sabotage. It's got to be the kind of movie where you expect the dull spots, but suddenly it gets very exciting when you least expect it. It's as if the moment he gets the assignment, they already know way across the ocean. They already have their forces out to get him. They know that the only guy who would ever come up against them would be this guy. It really goes fast. Just to move along, essentially he ends up in Cairo or some exotic Middle East area, which is where most of it takes place. In the desert, Jordan, Israel, that area. He's given the name of a man who knows about the situation, an agent. He goes into this very sleazy Casablanca-type club and makes contact with this agent. The agent is a girl. This part was also sort of Phil's. I wasn't completely crazy about it, but I'll continue in the way we had, we had done it. She's sort of a Marlene Dietrich tavern singer spy. 
a German lady singer. She's really a double agent. She wants to know what the Nazis are doing and where they are. She knows what the Nazis are doing and where they are. He gets mixed up with her. She wants him to make her his partner. They sort of have this affair right away. She knows everything. She wants to get cut in on his percentage. She's sort of a mercenary. She hates the Germans, but at the same time, this is her chance to get out of here, out of this hole. She sort of double-crosses the army. Look, I'm not going to give you anything unless you cut me in on this. There's a lot of money in this. I can smell it. He cuts her in on it. They're sort of working together, but they don't really, can't really trust her very much. They're the love story aspect of it. She's sort of the back streets girl. She's having an affair or something with one of the officers. That's how she gets her information. She tells him that there's a digging, that they're out there in the desert and they have found the opening to a temple and that they think the Ark is in there. This middle part, part of this is to develop the relationship. This is where there is a lot of the sabotage. People are trying to kill him as soon as he arrives, or maybe even before he arrives, on the airplane. As soon as he gets there, there are knives coming out of walls, all these slimy characters are following him, all that stuff that happens in these places in the 30s. He's poisoned and all kinds of things. He's trying to make contact with some other Arab guys who are trying to help him. He tried to look up an old friend in the area and get some information, and he's trying to get information from this girl. Finally, she gives it to him about where the Germans are. We had thought of giving him another piece of information, a MacGuffin, that he could, like, take with him to try to analyze. This whole section is him sneaking around exotic stuff where he's constantly being... He beats up Nazi agents once in a while, and he sort of and we sort of established the German agent. That's just for a couple of scenes where we set the relationship with the girl, the tension, some fights in rooms with lots of boxes. They're trapped in storerooms and stuff where he's trying to make contact with his friend. He goes out in the desert, and I, I'm not really telling this part right... He gets this piece of information that he needs. He goes out and sees the Germans disguised as Arabs. He realizes he's piecing this puzzle together trying to find the temple. They have not found the temple. They're just excavating around here. He realizes that the temple is like a quarter of a mile east of where they are. He goes and finds it. It's in the desert and he digs down and he finds a little tiny bit of ruin. So he searches around until he finds something like a post or column. He digs into the sand. A couple Arabs are with him. There's a stone thing that he opens up. There's a hole in the ground. He goes down in it, and it's the temple. He finds it, and he finds the lost ark. He's recovering it. There's lots of tension because we have established that everyone is trying to kill him. People are following him all over the place. He knows that about a quarter mile east are about 50 Germans who dis with disguised tanks and guns. They have all kinds of junk all over there. So he's working right under their noses. The idea in the middle section was to create sort of a race tension who's going to find the ark first situation if he pieces the puzzle together first he gets the ark he starts to get the ark out of the thing and it comes out of the hole and all the germans are there he's caught they take the ark then they beat the shit out of him he does some fancy stuff but they throw him back in the hole we actually have the girl going off with the germans we don't know what her situation is but we don't taint her but when the germans show up she immediately goes off with the side that's winning he gets thrown back in the hole, and they close the tomb up and leave him there to die. Then they take the thing back to camp. Then he sort of tries to get away when she comes back and lets him out. Then we realize what she really was. She just didn't want to get thrown in the hole with him. Didn't think that it would be any good. It's night, and they sneak off to the camp. Then they go into a tent and start to steal the Ark, start to take it to a truck. He's pretending he's one of the Germans, although he's wearing his regular stuff. Most of the Germans don't know who he is. They get caught. They're also with another Arab sidekick who also gets thrown back into the thing. A little comic relief. They pretend like they're supposed to be carrying it, then they put it on a truck. 
As one guy says, a little German, like he's one of them. There are German civilians and German soldiers. The guys who have driven up are new guys. The truck comes up and they get out. They meet him coming toward them. Oh, good, you have come to meet us. Just as they're putting the Ark on the truck, the old guard comes up. They beat up some guards as they're discovered. It's too late and they sort of sneak off. The trucks take off into the night. He has to do something fast. Our guy comes back into the camp, jumps on a horse, and starts chasing after him. Wait here, I'll get the damn thing back. The truck is racing along the desert, and he races along with the horse. He jumps on the truck. We had him shoot the tires in the back of the truck, and it sort of skids off the road. Then he sort of turns and goes up a hill and comes back down the other side, and the other truck is there and stopped. So we had him get rid of the back truck. Then he comes up alongside the other truck. It's one of those canvas Warner Brothers trucks from the 30s. He races alongside the one with the Ark in it. He jumps onto the cab and has a fight. So we're going to have a great fight in the truck. They're hitting each other as the truck goes over these mountainous roads. They beat on each other until the road gets rough, and they help each other make the turns. Then they go on hitting each other. The Germans who are traveling with the Ark in the back hear the scuffle. They look through the window, and they have to go along the side to get to the cab. So our hero takes the truck and just peels them off by scraping the truck against the cliff wall. There are five Germans, and he scrapes them off, and five more climb on a couple of them are climbing over the top. They're all trying to we get We have our him. first suspense thing in the temple. Then there was another one in this craziness that happens when he gets trapped. And then there's this one. This is one of the real action ones. He gets rid of the Germans and gets control of the truck. He has told his Arab friend to get back to town, Cairo or whatever. In the part where he's searching around for information, he realizes he, had a, he has a couple friends there. He's sort of well known. He's obviously been back there a lot. So it's a sort of underground thing there. He has told the guy to get back to town and tell Sabud he'll need to get out right away. Excuse me. He'll need a ship or plane. As he's going into town, he's passed by a couple German motorcycle guys. They suddenly point and yell at him. They turn around and start going after him. There's a car chase through the village. Scattering chickens. Little kids running across the street and the streets are only this wide and the truck is that wide. That kind of stuff. Clothes on clotheslines are trailing after the truck. It's bullet through the streets of Cairo, its poorer section. After being chased by two motorcycle guys with sidecars who are firing on him, they can't do a lot because there's no war going on in town. They're all strangers in this country. They crash into walls and all those kind of things. He finally goes into a garage, zip, clang, close the doors. His friends are there. They pull it out, and this is the first time we see the Ark, except we don't really see it. It's in a big packing crate, sort of a coffin or something. Can we see it? No, no. I have to get this out of here right now. What arrangements have you made? I couldn't get you a plane, but I got you on a boat. And the boat is a tramp steamer, a pirate ship. A Chinese tramp steamer with guns. The sheet metal folds down, the canvas comes up, and there are three-inch deck guns. Our guy gets on the ship and then he realizes they are a bunch of Chinese pirates. He sees the guns. We don't ask any questions. We're reliable. His friend tells him that this guy is really trustworthy. He's a pirate and everything, but he's really good. He'll get them out of there, and he hates Nazis as much as they do. So our guy says, okay. As the ship starts to steam out of the bay, the Nazis are coming down the docks in trucks and cars. The ship just gets away from the dock. The Germans are standing as the ship pulls out to sea. The captain tells our hero that he must have really done something to make the Nazis hate him. They talk and become friends, sort of. We should have you in London in five hours or whatever. Fine, that's great. I'm going to get a little shut-eye. It's been a hard day. Wake me when we pass Gibraltar. He goes to bed. Fade out. Fade in. He wakes up and the ship is stopped. He rushes upstairs. 
what's going on? We've been stopped. I know we've been stopped. What's going on? Look. He looks out. There's a ring of wolf-packed German U-boats around the ship. Shit. They're starting to come aboard. The Chinese refuse to fire on them. The Germans would sink the ship. The Germans come aboard and start looking around, and they ask the Chinese. They take the Ark, and they row it out to one of the submarines, and the Germans start to depart. We see our hero swimming, catching onto one of the submarines, the one with the Ark in it. The submarine starts taking off. Our guy yanks himself up, runs across, and gets up onto the tower. The submarine starts to sink. He never goes below periscope depth. We see him hanging onto the periscope. There's a scene with the Germans inside Achtung. They go to the Greek islands. Doors open onto one island, and the ship goes in in this typical German submarine base under the island. He gets off before it goes in. They take the Ark down into a thing. He has had a run-in with this professor in the running around sequence in Cairo with the girl. Didn't he see him at the tomb? Yes, both times. So he is at this base, and they take the Ark, and they take it into this... There's a thing about the Ark. I don't know what it is. Something about where they set up sheets and stuff in a certain way. This is also Phil's information. They had set up various interlocking tents, according to the legend. In this giant cavern, they had set up these tents, a maze of nylon stuff. So he seeks, so he sneaks in there past the guards, past all this stuff, and he goes into the thing. The bad Nazi and the professor are nemesis. There's this vicious Nazi general who's the sort of sidekick killer, Mr. Skull and Crossbones. They are in there, and he's anxious to have the Ark opened. The professor is a little leery about the whole thing. We have to be careful. We should deliver it to Hitler before we play around with it. No, no, I have to know. They uncrate it. This is the part that's left to interpretation. My feeling was that maybe it was a little unbelievable. Our hero gets into the room. They catch him. There's a fight. He's being led away. He gets away with a little trouble and hides. The guys now open the crate up. They open it, and just as they open it, this lightning bolt or electric charge, the whole thing becomes kinetic energy with lightning arcs. It's very quick. Like a lightning rod, it attracts static electricity. The two guys get fried. At this point, our guy is sort of helpless. The tent bursts into fire. All the guards turn around and look, and this confusion is when he takes the opportunity and splits. Who gets fried? The professor and the captain. All the Nazis are yelling about putting the fire out. They put it out. They put it out. Our guy is hidden during all of this, but he can see it. Now we cut to the smoldering ruins. Our guy sneaks in there and gets the Ark and hustles out with it. This is more or less the end of the movie. There's no confrontation now with the arch rival. The confrontation takes place just before that. They're starting to unpack the whole thing before he shows up. Then they have their confrontation. They get into their fight. Our hero is beaten up, subdued. I have the last laugh on you. Send him to the sharks. They're leading him away, and you think that's the end. The bad guys have won. Our hero is, is being led out to be killed, and then they're going to open the ark. When they open it up, this electric stuff happens and fries them. Our guy gets away. Now we cut to the smoldering ruins. The Ark has been pulled off to one side. We see our guy grab the Ark and sneak off. Cut to Washington. Our guy is getting congratulated. The end sort of is that he takes the Ark. It's crated up. No one even looks at it. They crate it up, put it in an army warehouse somewhere. That's how it ends. Very bureaucratic. The feeling is that the Ark is a real thing, that it is a very powerful thing. Supernatural. It's sitting down in the government warehouse. The bureaucracy is the big winner in the film. In the specific scenes, it works out that he gets beat and shit happens to him in the process. Obviously, there has to be some kind of scene with him in Washington. Headlines. Hitler invades Poland without the Ark. The problem with the girl is that we had the ending and everything, and I didn't know how to get the girl in the submarine, and she just sort of drops out. You can't take a girl through that kind of story. We rationalized that she was German, and maybe we could... 
and maybe could go back with the professor or something so she could be there in the end. The story would come back together again. She wouldn't be on the ship, but she would be in the... The other idea was that she meets the guy when he gets back to the garage. They get on the Chinese ship together and have a relationship there. Then when the Germans come, suddenly our hero is gone and they take the girl with them. She doesn't know what's happened to him or anything. Then he shows up again in the thing. We had it worked out where we would carry her along. It did make sense. If she's a German and sort of double agent, you could take her on one side, then you can take her on the other side. The biggest problem was how to get her to go along with everything apart from the relationship. Obviously, you can develop the relationship between two characters. All you have to do is have them in the same room together somehow. These are tangential things. We wanted to get a clipper, one of those flying boat things when he goes across the Atlantic. And also we wanted to get a flying wing out in the desert. Should this be in the desert or in the jungle? They pull those bushes apart and there's land. There's a landing strip there. This flying wing comes in and our hero has a fight with one of the guys around the flying wing. There are a few of those adventure scenes that get stuck under the main plot. In the way you have it now, in the final confrontation with the arch rival, the arch rival is victorious, then he gets fried by the Ark. Right. The Ark is ultimately victorious. The other thing, our guy would really be skeptical about the powers of the Ark, but the arch rival is convinced that it's all true. That it has power, and with it they could end the world. They sort of trade myths and legends back and forth. In the end, the bad guy was right, and our guy was there to see it. He doesn't see the arcs and stuff, but he sees the tents go into a ball of fire. When he gets back to Washington, he's telling the guys, that arc, it's true. It's the lost arc. The army guy tells him they'll take care of it. It's all top secret stuff. He gets shut out of it, and they don't believe him, and, and they just put it away. But you don't want him in the tent. Right. I don't know how we get him out and everybody else out. The thing of it is, we don't know what's inside the arc through the whole thing. The audience is curious about what's going to be in it in the end. In the Cairo sequence, he has some Arab friends, a family with kids running around, but he also has a friend who's sort of another archaeologist who doesn't like him. They're old friends, they went to school together, only he doesn't like him, because he doesn't like what our guy is doing. He's a serious archaeologist and really doesn't approve. They have discussions about the Ark. In the process of all of this, they sort of explain more and more about the Ark, so we don't have one big long scene. Everybody has different theories about what's inside and what the power is and how it works. Throughout the script, we're establishing the mystery of this arc and what it can do. So at the end, when we finally open it, it's a big surprise. The idea is, when they open it up, there should be something really neat inside. This was stuff that Phil was going to research, and we left it at that. The idea was that it was the head of Jesus or a scroll or whatever. We never see. All we see are those electrical charges and stuff. The real theory about the arc is that if you take this arc and put it in this confirmation with these tents, you could talk to God in it. It's like a radio transmitter. That's the real legend. That's what they used to do. The Israelis used to set up these tents and they would talk to God and God would tell them what to do. And then they would march with it in front of their army. The other armies would be destroyed. Our idea was that there must actually be some kind of super high-powered radio from one of Eric Von Daniken's flying saucers. The fact that it's electrical charges makes it vaguely believable. The idea was that if it was the right kind of trunk... We have to get descriptions of what it looks like, but supposedly it's like a big trunk. It's like a car generator that you crank and it goes... When they opened it up, you had the sense of some kind of kinetic generator which creates a tremendous amount of static electricity. There are all these religious trappings and interesting mysteries and occult stuff, and at the same time, it's something that these people carry around. It's a big thing. We have a great scene where all these poor little Arabs are trying to carry this thing to a truck. It's easy on basic plot to lay out all these good scenes, good cliffhangers. 
In that sort of amorphous area in Cairo, that's where we can fit some in. In the essence, it's just bullshit stuff where he wanders around Cairo trying to uncover the mystery of this puzzle. At the same time, you can meet all these interesting characters and every once in a while somebody throws a knife at him or he beats somebody up or somebody beats him up. Typical Middle Eastern stuff. What he's doing is going around getting the pieces of the puzzle. He starts with one piece and then he gets another piece from his friend. The girl has one piece. He gets a piece from the Arabs who stole it from the Germans. He finally gets all the pieces. The Germans have how much of it? They only have like two thirds of it. But they have already done the groundwork. Right. And they're working with two thirds and they think and they think they can figure it out. He has his pieces, and he gets a drawing of the Germans' pieces, and he fits it all together. The Germans have found some ruins, but they haven't located it yet. It's a part of a lost city. Where is it when they throw him back into the tomb? I had it about two-thirds of the way in. Once he gets the Ark, the whole thing is like a chase right to the end. Either he's chasing them, or they're chasing him. It goes very fast. There's a little respite on the boat, but it's all around it's a chase scene. Then he follows him into the cave, and then there's the end of the movie. I know you don't like the idea of somebody just tagging along the conversation, but make her someone who wouldn't have been in this picture. And if she weren't in this picture, a lot of this stuff wouldn't have taken place. As the plane is crashing, she's the pilot. They're going to crash land together. She's really angry at him. She gets involved in the plot and is useful. She's not just somebody to be around for comic relief or romantic relief, rather than being a kind of quasi in the Dietrich mold, like a double agent. It's more of a plot thing. I had her a German double agent who was stuck over there. Then we can use her in the plot. She sort of has access to information. She is useful and tied in. Has to be something where she's sort of tied in together in this thing where it's conceivable. Again, she doesn't have to be German. She could be American. She could be French or whatever. But I don't think we should come up with some reason to keep her from being just a tag along. The only thing I can come up with is that she's sort of a mercenary and somehow involved. Like she has a piece of the puzzle rather than being forced into the situation. Because if she's forced into it, she's constantly trying to fight to keep her there. Every scene you're going to have to explain why she's there and why she doesn't leave. Half of her dialogue is going to end up being Smokey and the Bandit dialogue. In this, we have to come up with something where she's not constantly justifying her existence. She has to be there for a reason. I'd say greed. Okay, if she's a double agent, I think it would be interesting. He goes from Washington to where? To Cairo. We can have him go anywhere. The, the concept is that he's chasing a puzzle. He's got one piece of it, and he thinks he knows who has the other pieces. So you can just send him to Hong Kong. I was thinking you could do a tiny piece in Hong Kong where constantly people are trying to knife him in the back and shoot poison darts into his ears. You had mentioned that you didn't want to spend all the time in the desert, so you can condense some of that time by taking stuff that could happen anywhere, which is finding puzzle pieces and putting it wherever you want. One thing you should do, he's on this airplane. There are about four or five passengers around him. He's asleep, and these passengers are looking at him. We don't know why. They all get up and put on parachutes, and they jump out the door. He wakes up when he hears the door open, and he realizes now he's all alone. The door to the cockpit is locked. The airplane begins to go into a spin. Now he's trapped in this airplane, and it's going down. This whole thing was a setup. That's a great cliffhanger to see how he gets out. That's great. Then what happens? One sentence further, and it's a great idea. Well, he's never flown an airplane before, but he kicks in the pilot's door. That would be interesting. He's never flown before, but he brings it down. The other thing would be if he knows how to fly, but he's too late. It's one of those jungle scenes you've seen where the plane crashes into this dinosaur infested jungle, only now without dinosaurs. 
has to bring it down over the treetops. Either that or he crashes into the Mediterranean, into the water. Part of it is stylistic, but one of those things that works in movies is when the guy gets out of that situation in a unique, very bravado sort of way. He has to do something so the so audacious that you have to say, I never think of anything like that. And then he gets away with it. One of the things he could try, although it takes away from the suspense, if I were him, I'd jump at the last minute with a parachute. The way to do it is to have him, you have seat covers or something. He starts ripping off the seat covers and tying them together. Then he jumps out holding all these seat covers. It's sort of unbelievable. If you could make something like that believable... He's over the water. It's James Bond. Not only do you have him get out of it, you have to do it in a very colorful way. I'm not saying that you have to be clever. Just make it believable. Sometimes he does it in a totally outrageous way, but it works and it's truly great. One thing he can do is wait until it's almost crashed into the ground and then jump out and land in a tree or on a rooftop. If we can take him from Washington, why don't we take him to Hong Kong or Shanghai? That's a great place. It's more exotic than Hong Kong. So he crashes into the water with islands and Chinese junks. He does this. Under his seat is a life vest or a life raft. He takes the life vest out from all the seats, and he blows them all up, and he gets inside, and he's completely insulated. Then he jumps out of the airplane. He just surrounds himself with these huge cushioned items. Did they have those things in 36? They had them in all airplanes. That's a little research item. They might have just had life preservers. If they had life preservers, you could more or less do the same thing. If he's over water, the plane could be going down at a steep angle. The other thing he can do that's more in keeping with the heroic side is, rather than abandon the plane, he could kick down the door and we see the ocean just coming up at him. He'd pull the plane up just at the last moment. That's the old cliche shot. The plane is bellying on the water. The water bursts through the cockpit. The plane begins to sink. That would be interesting. He gets out of this sinking airplane and finds a vacuum. He takes a big breath of air. He can't climb out until the pressure is equal. That means the whole plane has to be underwater before he can climb out the window. Then he just climbs out the window and swims to the surface. I like the part where he jumps out. That's a clever idea. What if he makes himself into a ball with the light preservers and just goes skipping into the water? If he like ties himself into a ball with these preservers and he jumps out at the last minute. If there were a life raft, he could just enclose himself in it. That's a good idea. I'm just worried they didn't have life rafts then. They had life rafts all through the Second World War that were inflatable. I wanted him to be on a clipper. It's a big plane. Is there one we could use for takeoff and landing and use a miniature for the crash? I heard that there's one left in South America someplace. I just want to send a second unit to shoot at taking off and maybe get some extra stuff. If we send him to Shanghai, we could have him going to see his enemy and we could connect it rather than having it unconnected. The only reason we're talking about the Orient is that it's exotic. He's going to leave Washington and go to three exotic places. He'll go to the Orient with the crowded streets and dragon ladies. Then we'll send him to the Himalayas with the snow. And then we'll send him to Cairo. Going from the Himalayas to Cairo, he would be going over water. He could land in the snow. One thing about landing in the water that bothers me is that we end up in the water on the sub. Actually, he could land in the snow. When he hits, the raft comes open and he has a toboggan ride. It's even better because when he thinks of the raft over, well, that's why he thought of it. But if he thinks it over snow, that's even more clever, and snow is soft. If the plane gets to crash in the mountains, there would be a huge explosion that we wouldn't have in the water. The plane is going into a box canyon, and the guy has to jump. On top of a mountain, he jumps off. The plane hits the mountain, and there's a big fireball. The pieces go everywhere. He's on the raft, holding onto the ropes, coming down the mountain, and for comic relief... 
he should go right through some sort of village with a fiesta or something happening with llamas. He knocks a llama over. It can be amusing, but at the same time, it has to be very realistic. It has to be what would really happen. You have to believe that someone could live through it like that. We have to concentrate on keeping it clean and not go through unnecessary explanations. The fun part of that flight is when it comes out of nowhere. You don't just expect it. It's great if it's the second flight in the movie. We'll cut to him flying various places. We want to get all that great period stuff. We have all these flights and then suddenly you cut to all this craziness going on. I think he should go to Shanghai to find this guy, his enemy. We should get a little information about the enemy also. Maybe he gets a piece of the puzzle that sends him to the Himalayas. Right. He knows his enemies in Paris. So he so he's on his own protecting the museum. His henchmen are. Is there anything our guy can do to pick up whatever information his enemy already has? Somehow see this information that has already passed through the room? Right. He's trying to find out what that guy knows. It takes him right to the heart of the other guy's strength. I like that. We can do that easy. Before I had the girl providing that, we can decide which way. I had the girl get the copy of the drawing. But if that guy had it, it would have to be in a safe or something. Exactly how do you see this puzzle? I see it as a tablet, a piece of a stone with a map. It's not really a map. It's a description of the site. It's like a plan of the city. It was drawn at the time. It has hieroglyphics on it telling the legend. It's an architect's drawings that were done in stone, and it shows the placement of various temples and of the Ark. The tablet was found out in the desert where the Germans are. It has to be a lost city of something. Does it lead you to the Ark? It shouldn't be something that shows you where the Ark is. It should show you where a certain temple is. If you find the city and you have the map that shows you where the temple is, then you find the Ark. Otherwise, you have to dig up the whole city. The Germans have found the lost city, and they have two-thirds of the map, which maybe they found when they were digging. Other portions of this map have been found before, antiquities in various museums and other places. Let's say her father is there. Her father may have been his mentor. He has been working on some unrelated project, but it was her father who discovered the first fragment of the map. She has it. Her father dies. That's why they're going to Nepal to get it from her. That's why they know each other. That's why she's reluctant to part with it. Does any of this sound possible? Sounds possible. So they have a previous relationship through her father. The other thing we can do, twisting what we've done with we've already got. Yeah, my immediate reaction is to shy away from why the professor's daughter goes along. But if we do it, and since her father dies, he left her broke. He was an archaeologist and left her so broke she didn't have any money to get back. So she's stuck there. She runs the bar. She's the local Rick. Sort of the American Rick. She's sort of goofy. She's earning money to get back to the States. Yeah, she wants to get back. She sort of made it her home. She started out maybe singing or being a call girl or whatever. Eventually, she bought out the guy who ran the place or he died. Now she's got this little tavern and she's doing sort of well. She could only sell the place for as much money as it is to get her back to the States. And then she would be stuck there with nothing, no job. What she'd like to do is really strike it rich. But she doesn't see any way of doing that. She's sort of a goofy, tough, willing to take care of herself, mercenary type lady who's really out for herself. She has this piece and he wants it. So what she does is cut herself in. Look, you're going to have to take me along. What do you mean? Partners, I've got one piece, you have the other. That's the old story. It's the kind of thing where she wants to go back to the States in style or something. She doesn't want to get on a tramp steamer and make her way back, which is what she could have done a while ago. She wants to go back as a lady. This is her chance. She says she'll sell it to him. This is in Cairo? No, this is Nepal. She's stuck there. Who are her customers at this Rick's place in Nepal? There's actually a Rick's place in Nepal. Bill and Gloria know about it. They stayed there. 
It's some expatriate American who lives at the foot of the Himalayas. It's got this hotel slash bar. I like the idea that she's a heavy drinker and our hero doesn't drink at all. She gets drunk a lot. She's beautiful and she gets really sexy when she's drunk and silly. And he doesn't touch the stuff. I don't want to soften her. I like the fact that it's greed. I like all the hard stuff. But you're going to love her. This is good. But she obviously gets into something that's way over her head as the whole thing goes along. I wonder if someone hasn't approached her already. The map is heated up considerably in three weeks. They found the town. Does she have some tip off that this is worthwhile? When he comes to her, that's funny. I've had this 10 years since my father died. Now in two weeks. Now, sorry. Now this, now in this week, two people want it. If the Germans got there first, they probably would have offered her a lot of money. And she probably would have sold it to them. Maybe no one knew where she is and he finds her through Washington or something. Some way where he would know, but no one else. Or the government would know and he gets it from them. Maybe the enemy doesn't know yet where this professor died, and that would make it interesting because supposedly she's secure and he's sabotaged on the way there. You know that they know more or less where he's going. The immediate danger is that they're racing to get there. She tells him that if he wants this thing so bad, it'll cost him $20,000. I don't have that kind of money. I don't get anything until I get the whole thing. When we get the Ark, then I get the money. She says, okay, we're partners. It forces her to stay with him. If the Germans came and offered her the money right away, she'd take it. And they would give it to her. I think it's better at this point to keep the Germans one step behind. They're one step ahead in sabotaging him, but they don't know where he's going. They begin to figure it out, and they decide to kill him and go get it. They're on their way, too. There's another plane that's flying alongside his that has the bad guys in it. They're trying to get there first. They just don't have as specific information as he does. They just know he's in Nepal someplace. So we slow them down once they get there. She gives him this map right away? It has to be fairly quick. He has to win her confidence. Right. Let's say the Germans are a half hour behind them, and they're haggling. She is in immediate jeopardy, and he represents some security to her. Since he got there first, it's too late for them to try and buy it. All they can do is kill them both and take it. How would they know where it is unless they torture her first to find out? They won't know. They wouldn't want to kill them until they have their hands on the map. Maybe they just want to kill him. She has a rooming house above the cafe. He hears this sound. In the middle of the night, he gets up and looks over the banister. There are Germans everywhere. They have her and they're interrogating her in the middle of this empty cafe in the middle of the night. He comes in and saves her. You sort of introduce her as a damsel in distress. In the other way, she's sort of a tough girl. Or you could do both. You could have him come and haggle with her and have her say, no way, no money, no deal. He gets sort of pissed off and goes out. He comes back later and the place is empty and they're in there torturing her. The thing hasn't been worth anything up until now, so she wears it around her neck. Or it's on the mantle. It's like a joke. Obviously, it could be something semi-precious to her because her father gave it to her. We'll assume that she did love the old coot. He goes off to his room for the night. He gets up. He's going to steal it. In the interim, the Germans have arrived. When he goes down to steal it, he winds up rescuing her. He stumbles into this heroic role. She could doubt his motivation from then on. You didn't come down here to save me. We have to get them cemented in a very strong relationship, a bond. I like it if they already had a relationship at one point, because then you don't have to build it. I was thinking that this old guy could have been his mentor. He would have known this little girl when she was a kid, had an affair with her when she was 11. And he was 42. He's 35, and he knew her 10 years ago when he was 25, and she was only 12. 
it would be amusing to make her slightly young at the time. And promiscuous, like she came on to him. 15 is right on the edge. I know it's an outrageous idea, but it is interesting. Once she's 16 or 17, it's not interesting anymore. But if she was 15 and he was 25, and they actually had an affair the last time they met, and she was madly in love with him, and she... She has pictures of him. There would be a picture on the mantle of her, her father, and him. She was madly in love with him at the time, and he left her because obviously it wouldn't work out. Now she's 25, and she's been living in Nepal since she was 18. It's not only that they like each other. It's a very bizarre thing. It's a whole new perspective on this whole thing. It gives a lot of stuff to play off between them. Maybe she still likes him. It's something he'd rather forget about and not have come up again. This gives her a lot of ammunition to fight with. In a way, she could say, you've made me this hard. This is a resource that you can either mine or not. It's not as blatant as we're talking about. You don't have to think about it that much. You don't immediately realize how old she was at the time. It would be subtle. She could talk about it. I was jailbait the last time we were together. She can flaunt it at him, but at the same time, she never says, I was 15 years old. Even if we don't mention it, when we go to the cast apart, we're going to end up with a woman who's about 23 and a hero who's about 35. She is the daughter of the professor who our hero is under the tutelage of. She has this little fragment of the map. He doesn't have to have the fragment in hand. All he has to do is get a copy of it, make a rubbing of it. His first job is to go to Shanghai, into the lion's den to get this, which is usually at the end, so this is a twist. In Washington, we have the advantage of being able to set up anything we want. In terms of information, what is going on? Say the Germans sent him the tablet to decipher. They wouldn't do that. They would send him the, the rubbing. Suppose the rubbing wasn't articulate enough. They could send a photograph, I guess. Let's say the arch enemy is gone now, but it had been there in his lab. Maybe the arch villain had a piece or two all along. But it was useless to him. Our guy knows that it's being kept there. The actual piece is no longer there, but it's been sitting on felt or in glass or there's an impression of it. Well, I like the idea of a sunspot, but then it would be the shape of the broken piece rather than what's on it. Again, we can design this however we want. It doesn't have to be a tablet. It can be a painting on a vase. It can be any antiquity that we come up with. It could be a scroll or some kind of statue or some sort of tall thing with a very strange design that is actually designed to the city. People have various pieces of it, something that's stacked. It could be a thing with lots of gizmos in it, very intricately carved. It was, this top, it was the top of a stack that the mayor of the city carried around. This would be the sun and this would be the city. The city reached the sun, a symbol. It has been broken into a lot of pieces. There's, there's a piece at this museum, which is one of the reasons that they would call this guy in. Not only is he a shyster and all that stuff, but he also has a major piece of it. Say the Nazis only have half of it or a third of it. This guy has a third. This guy has a third. So with their third and his third, they have two thirds of it. This other professor has a little piece. Make it quarters so the Nazis only have half of it. Can they decipher every piece? The design has the sun on top of it. What if the way to the arc is when the light hits a certain point on the sculpture, it shows the entrance. So if you had the top half, it would do you no good because the sun would be hitting nothing. If you have enough pieces, you can deduce the exact size. But if the Chinese and the Nazis have two sections... Why doesn't he just go right there and get both of them at once rather than go where one piece is? Unless he thinks it's going to be very difficult, as it turns out, to walk into the Nazi camp and get it. Unless he thinks the Chinese guy is still there with both of them. He goes there to see if he can get it and finds out the guy is gone. He knows exactly where it is because he's been there before, but now it's gone. Then he looks at the shadow. He doesn't know he's going to be able to get the Nazi piece. Right now, he's going to get all the pieces he can. So he copies the silhouette. 
Then he goes to get the part the girl has. From that, he figures it out. He says, okay, I'll get you a ticket to Cairo and you can leave tonight. He tells him he doesn't want to go to Cairo. He wants to go to Shanghai because we'll have to have this piece that's there. If the scriptures are true or whatever, then you have to have this piece to make it work. I have to get it or at least a copy of it. He goes to Shanghai and it's been stolen. If he can make an outline of it, then I assume somebody has a still of it. And whatever information you can get off this real thing, you could get off a still. I'm just being the devil's advocate here. If it's an important piece, certainly there are photographs of it. There is a coalition of museums where you have to register everything. Assume at this point that no one has ever thought twice about it. All it gives us is his clever way of taking the shadow. So how much film time is this going to take? I'm trying to get something that's very simple. We don't have to go into endless explanations about how... This has to be something that's extremely simplistic in terms of the pieces. That is sort of foolproof in its own way. It has to be something very obvious. We know that whatever it is, we have to have pieces of a puzzle. It would be nice if the puzzle were some sort of great key thing with the sun hitting. That's a lot of fun. And the girl has to have an important piece that makes her a vital link in the whole chain. We want to send the guy to Shanghai first for the environment. Have a little bit of adventure there before he goes to Nepal, before he ends up in Cairo. Between the point where he leaves Washington and he's up there on the hill looking down at the Nazis part of it is in the Orient. Part of it is in the Orient, part is in Nepal, part in the mud streets of some Arab city. Then a lot of it takes place in the desert. What we have to do is figure out how we're going to put the puzzle together in terms of what can be missing that can be the key to this thing. The original was a plan of the city of this piece. We know that each person has a piece. That's the easiest thing. But having a staff. A staff. That solves the problem. I like the staff and the sunlight thing. What we have to figure out is where she carries it. Or what he's going to Shanghai for. That can either be the stronghold of our guy or not. He can be based in Shanghai or Paris. I thought he would meet his arch rival in Shanghai. Only because of the fact that the arch rival is Oriental. We don't have to make him Oriental. We could make him black. The only other thing that gets complex is if the bad guy is Oriental and he goes on the Oriental pirate ship, it doesn't have to be an Oriental pirate ship. Assuming that we don't make the arch rival Chinese, make him French. When he goes to Shanghai to get the piece that it is a surprise that it is missing. It could be in a private collection. You wouldn't have to worry about stills of it. The private collection it's in could be... Some very rich Chinese warlord. In those days, they had warlords. They didn't get rid of them until the Japanese came. A swordsman. That's what happens in Shanghai. That would be great. The warlords were actually like banditos. I'd like to see him taking on a whole bunch of samurai. It would be Chinese swordsmen, which is different. Maybe we should move it to Tokyo. Shanghai is good. We still have swords and stuff. It's just a very different kind of sword, and it works in different ways. This could be a Japanese swordsman who is so bad they kicked him out of Japan. Now he's in China. We have to do some research, but actually the war in Japan was going on in 36. When you send him to Shanghai, we'll have to check this, but I think the war was going on there then. It's perfect. You have explosions and zeros. The warlords were sort of corrupt guys. If this guy is in league with the Japanese... We just touch on a whole other story. This guy is a warlord by virtue of the fact that he's sold out to the Japanese, and the Japanese are using his influence and his thing as a base for his operation. They wouldn't be samurai, they would be your rising sun guys. Some of those guys carrying samurai swords. His personal bodyguards could have samurai swords. We could bring the Japanese into it and Chinese warlords. This guy is helping the Japanese to kill and maim his country, so he's really a despicable person. You have to have a beheading. We have to start this scene with a mass beheading. We don't have to show it. If you were really bad, it took three minutes to cut your head off. 
Then the Japanese zero strafe. They're cutting off the heads of flying tigers, American mercenaries. He gets on his clipper and he flies from Washington to Shanghai. At the end of the temple scene, probably some transitional scene there. We may have some kind of... The thing we've been avoiding is that he could pick up his piece there. We were thinking that they had already got to it. Maybe he actually gets the piece there before the other guys get there. He's one step ahead of them at this point. An interesting thought is how close the Germans are getting to it. You have the Germans get to it while he's there and have him sabotage the Germans just before they get it on their plane. I think it would be good if he got in and got out. When he gets on the plane, you think he's escaping. So the whole thing when he's going and everything becomes a real surprise. This is where we can do our first fight with the flying wing. We can do that sequence in the Shanghai area. And then he hops on a DC-3, which is their plane. It's the sabotage plane. One of the reasons I had the flying wing in the desert landing on a secret desert base was the fact that I assume that when we get it, we're going to have to get it out of the museum somewhere around here, and we might be able to take it out to a desert around here. The Mojave or one of those Air Force bases out there, it's clean. They can just fly it in and fly it out. It's sort of a second unit. Fly the plane in, stage the fight, and fly it out again without having to get into a big deal about getting it to a difficult location. These flying wings are so dangerous that you can't fly them anymore, but they're still around here somewhere. How many engines do they have? Four. It depends on how big it is. Is it the B-36 with eight engines backwards? Yes, the wing has four engines backwards. If he gets into Shanghai and he pulls off this thing, we have to figure out... Obviously, it moves fast enough that we don't have to rationalize a lot of what we're doing. If the expert landed in Cairo, he would think the same thing our hero would think, and he would have the Nazis fly to Shanghai and have the Nazi agent there contact this guy. At the same time, the fight is going on with the samurai. The Germans can be going through the formality with the Japanese and the Chinese warlords about coming down and getting it. When they open the door, he's going out over the roofs. Another way to do it would be to give our guy a jump Another way to do it would be to give our guy a jump a little bit. In Washington, they tell him he has to go right away because the Germans have found the lost city or whatever two days ago. A lot of activity going on out in the desert. They've contacted his old friend. They're talking about the Ark. Somehow they say he hasn't left Paris yet. They think that he's scheduled to leave tomorrow for Cairo. We know that his rival hasn't left Paris yet. That's when our guy says it must be true. I need a ticket to Shanghai. I assume that the French guy wouldn't figure it out until he actually got there. That's a question. How hip is the arch rival? At this point, our guy apparently knows that he needs the staff. He doesn't know if they found the map. The arch rival must know about the staff. You assume he knows this stuff if his mentor found the top of the staff. Now, why would the arch rival, upon hearing the news that they found the lost city, immediately say, I've got to get that staff put together? Why do we have to have such a big lead? What happens if we don't? It makes more sense if the arc rival hasn't gotten all this stuff before, so it becomes a race all the way. What is the advantage of the lead he's got? That's what it comes down to. It becomes slightly coincidence, and we have to avoid that, that his mentor knew all about this, and that's how come he knows all about it. Of course, it's not really a coincidence because he's going for the thing. If he knows the professor, and if he knows about this particular arc, he is the one who is really the expert on it, but he's very skeptical about it. He sort of researched it, and his mentor has researched it, and he thinks it's sort of horseshit. If they call him in and say, it seems the Germans have found the lost city, the lost city is the part that was the myth, they probably just stumbled into a big hole and they think they discovered something. Well, we're sending for this guy. So then our guy thinks maybe it is the lost city. If it is the lost city, they're going to need the staff. They're not going to figure that one out for a while. If they found the lost city and they're looking for the Ark, they're going to need the staff with the sun. 
I know where to get it, and I've got to get it right away before they get it and before my arch-rival gets it. Then we'd better cut to the arch-rival away from our hero, make him a separate character, and let him give the same orders. I think it's better not to. I don't want to set it up as a race. I think it's important that we set up the fact that our guy is getting to the thing before they do, or is trying to, or does get to it before they do, and then he goes to the girl and gets the other part. It seems like he could be just a step ahead all along. It could be a half hour or it could be 10 minutes. Do you have any problem with the fact that they bail out over the Himalayas when they had all the way from Shanghai to... No, that's the kind of stuff I like. I I wouldn't question it. It's the crazy oriental mind. How do we know how it works? They always wait until the last minute or something. So he gets in there. The Nazis are closing in. He has a fight with the samurai bodyguards and maybe some of the Nazis. He steals the thing. The great thing we have to set up on this flight to Nepal is that our Chinese guys are the ones who booked this great plane and all that stuff. So you assume that it's safe. They would have done this even if he'd gotten the thing safely. Right. We won't explain how they got this all figured out. The ideal thing is to set it up as safe a flight as possible. You think when he gets on the plane and sits down, everything is okay. Well, we got out of that one. Suddenly, there's no one there. Just as you think he's safe and there's going to be a little quiet period, he's on to the next thing and crashes. Are we going to do the fist fight with the flying wing here at the Shanghai airport? No, I I don't know. I don't think we should do that. The fight should be at the warlord's temple. When they jump in the car and race to the airport, the army intelligence guys and the Chinese underground guys say goodbye and good luck. They put him on the plane and they send him off and he's safe. What about the Nazis? Are there any close brushes with them? In the temple, he gets caught and has a fight. They sort of arrive together. When he arrives at the front of the temple, the Germans are arriving at the back. And the Chinese warlord insists on sort of a welcome ritual. Yeah, and the Germans aren't in any hurry because they don't know what's going on yet, we assume at this point. Well, close, but not close enough. They almost beat them, but they didn't. Once he crashes into the snow, we don't need to spend any time there. We just cut to him hobbling into the village, or we can have some people bring him down. After the toboggan ride. The other thing we have to do, the other thing we have to do, he has to hide this thing somewhere or they take it the one he picked up in Shanghai. We assume at this point they know that this is the guy and they want to kill him. What they have to do is get this thing back. He hides it on his person. We can make it as big or as small as we want. If it's a big stone thing, then it's going to be a little difficult. We hide it and then he carries it on the airplane into a little box about the size... We hide it and he carries on the airplane a little box about the right size that he's very protective of. He sets it on the seat next to him. When all the people are getting out very quietly, somebody comes over and picks up the box. Where did everybody go? Some bastard stole my lunch. Where does he meet the girl then? Nepal? Yeah. She's running this American hostel and bar, Rick's Place, in the middle of Nepal in some little village. Do you have a name for this person? I do for our leader. I hate this, but go ahead. Indiana Smith. It has to be unique. It's a character, very Americana square. He was born in Indiana. What does she call him? Indy? That's what I was thinking. Or Jones. Then people can call him Jones. He crashes into the snow, then dissolved him with his crutch or something making his way down into a village. There is a little scene where he gets transportation. Where he lands is not next door to the village. We might have a lot of suspicious-looking Himalayans standing around that that you might think are spies. One guy rushes to a telegraph office. Create a little bit of tension. It's really a scene where we can have him rent a car or something and drive to the next village. I don't think the trek is good getting out of the mountains, because they have a tendency to be boring. 
It should be getting where the girl is. Again, we're just talking about a few shots where you don't have to spend a lot of time in between things. We go to him trying to get a car, then dissolve him driving to the next village, getting out, looking around. We have established the fact that he's going to Nepal or someplace. It's not like he was going to Cairo and ended up in Nepal. I say we stop there for the day. 